Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I speak with Suvarchala, for whom wealth is a state of mind and who cultivates her eroticism. Hey, Suvarchala, so wonderful of you to join us. Thank you for having me. Yes. It's great to be here. Hmm. And it's great for me to be here too. I enjoy these recordings and I've been looking forward to our conversation. But before we start, I'm going to give the audience a bit of an idea about who you are. So besides being a technology and business journalist, you also have a business of your own in which you design and guide experiences around identity change, next level relating and eroticism. And for all these activities, you draw inspiration from very diverse traditions and myths, such as also Tantra and Sufism. That is fascinating. And I would love to speak about these things, except that is not why we're here. <laughs> Because the reason we're here is to talk about how you relate to yourself and hopefully what we can learn from that. Mm -hmm. Who's to say this isn't related, right? Well, I certainly hope that we will at least touch upon some of the subjects <laughs> in the conversation. I'm sure we will, actually, because, you know, that's... I think there are no silos in life, and so everything spills over into everything else. Oh, I like that. Everything spills over into everything else. Beautiful. Let that be the quote of this conversation. <laughs> to start with, I'm going to ask you my traditional question. Mm -hmm. When I say the words relating to self... Hmm. What does that mean to you exactly? What comes up for you? So this has been very interesting to me. I realized I haven't really thought about this until, you know, I saw your question. And firstly, let me just start with the concept of self-love, right? It's, it's really very prominent uh, in the zeitgeist today. Everyone's talking about it. There are books on it. There are practices, workshops, courses, uh, memes, um, hashtags. And when I really went into the meaning of the word, or for me, how I related to the word, I realized it was a very foreign word for me um, because it feels like something that was created, which it is. It was devised by someone or a group of people, and that idea spread in response to a certain thing that was prevalent at the time that wasn't working, obviously. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? When an idea has whose time has come goes viral, it creates shifts in paradigms, behaviors, and ways of relating to ourselves and others and to the world around us. But, you know, we talk of self-love as if there is something external that we do to the self. But how can we love something that whose very nature is love? And so I see it more as inhabiting the self or center consciously and coming from there. And then when we do that, every act becomes self-love or just love, right? So when I really went into what self-love means to me, I realized self-love is not the essence. It is a thing that points to the reminder of the essence. 
It gives us a language that reminds us when we have shifted too far from our essence. So maybe the way I would describe what self-love um, is, is really an idea that there is something that is us, something that is at the core of who we are. And all of self-love is a collection of practices. It's an invocation to go inside. It's a reminder of where our attention goes and then takes us into that essence. And that to me is self-love. And relating to self then may be what I call centering. That when you're centered in this essence, in who you are, um, again, the you is, again, the self that we, we are talking about because there are many selves, uh, many identities that we embody. But this self, this essence that we talk about, I think relating to self, what you're called relating to self, I maybe call that the act of centering. That is fascinating. I have never heard of the act of centering, although I do use centering as a verb also for myself when I think about like, you know, do I feel centered? Mm. <laughs> But before we go into the centering, I would love to go into something you said before about self-love. Because, yes, also my reflections on relating to self stem from a research into self-love, which at some point in my life felt relevant, as mm -hmm. you said. And I came to the conclusion that self-love is limiting as a concept for me because it implies that it is possible for me to fall out of it. Like yes. If, if, I, if I don't love myself, then there's a problem and I need to like regain the self-love. Yes. And so for me, relating to self was a way to explore this like, wait, but what if I don't love myself or I don't have the feeling that I love myself? I still relate to myself in that moment. I still mm. treat myself a certain way. I show up to myself a certain way. I act in a certain way with myself and through myself. And even in the absence of self-love, that is really important to examine, yeah. right? So I think that's quite closely related to, to what you expressed. But there's something that is very different, I think, in our approaches, which is fascinating to me. Mm. That is, then when you speak about this essence, mm. the nature of the self is love. Mm -hmm. And that is not my experience. That is not like my starting point for this exploration. Mm -hmm. So I would love to know a bit more about how you personally experience this nature of self as being love? Mm -hmm. I think my journey there has been quite rocky, <laughs> um, as it, you know, as journeys are. But it's, I can only say that I can't even, and this is why I think the best way to say this would be that it wasn't something I did. I call it an act of grace. This realization in my entire body, energy, uh, any understanding that I have that, wait, this is it, this I am love, like that's all it is. And it doesn't mean that you're always inhabiting that. In fact, if you did, there would be no reason for us to be on earth anymore, right? So the journey to that was very, very, um, it was varied. There was a lot of things that happened. So I've been on Again, I, I don't even want to use the word spiritual path or seeking because I feel like that feels like something that you do to get somewhere that is actually who you are, right? So those words now, again, language is such a huge problem with this. But what I will say is that it's almost like a dropping away rather than a learning of something. Hmm. And when that happened and continues to happen, you know, it's like, 
ah, it's there and you lose it again. It's there, you lose it again. It's, it's like you're playing hide and seek with your own self. And when that happens, you, you realize it's like, it's always there. And like a player who goes on stage, you decide to put on a robe, but, and you take it off, but you don't forget that you're not the actor. Right. And so to me, I, I know that pro it sounds really clumsy, but I feel like that's the best way to explain something that really, really language has no way to express. But what is what I can say is that once you're in that, once you feel that, then and you're coming from there. Everything is an act of love and you cannot come from there. And I think we often don't come from there. But when you remember and you come back, it's an act of love. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I, I intuitively understand what you're saying. And it reminds me of the metaphor that I learned in my um, meditation, my mindfulness meditation, yeah. this idea of like the consciousness being the blue sky and then thoughts being clouds of some kind or bad weather or whatever. But it's not because there are clouds that there is no sky anymore. Yeah. The sky is always there, except we can't see it. Right. <laughs> and we're not, we're not always there with it, you know. And, and I think the thing with these ideas, because we all grew up with these ideas of uh, concepts of what it should feel like. And, and I think this is a reason I have some questions about this notion of self-love. I think it's important, right? Because it's like a step on our journey and everything is important at different phases. But like you said, I think the notion of self-love is limited because it assumes that we have to do something to get somewhere. And it takes us, um, it's like you're going in circles instead of just stopping and being in what is. But again, maybe that's just one point of view. Yeah, I hear you. I have this idea that sometimes for me, self-love even feels a bit violent in mm -hmm. the sense that it forces me to do something. Right. It, it reminds me of like, you're not enough how yes. you are right now. You need to be like self-loving, whatever that means. Yes. And I'm much more about like, <laughs> hey, what if I can just accept who I am and what I am in each moment? And that is the greatest definition of love, right? Not just for yourself, but for others. What if you could accept everyone as they are in every moment? That is love. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I like that. But it's so hard, right? And I it, guess the whole, the whole conversation the whole of relating to self is like, how do we do that? In, first and foremost for ourselves and then yeah. obviously also for others. Hmm. Great. I want to come back to that about like mm. the, the path towards this sure. and, and, and your practices. But first I want to go back to what you call the centering act. Mm. How would you describe that for yourself when, when you're like, say very practically, you are in yeah. a place and you feel like a bit like mm, off, whatever. Mm. What happens? Like, how do you tell yourself, I need to center myself? So it's interesting that the very way you ask that question implies that one, the only time we center is when there's something that's disturbing us. And two, that a centering means a calming. And I think, again, that 
that comes from the mainstream view that somehow all spirituality, all love is all, you know, calmness and light and beauty. And I think it's actually very, a very small aspect of it. So to me, centering is really just hearing or feeling into what my authentic self is saying, or like my heart is saying, I think I'm going to use the word heart here. Um, and following that no matter what. So if in that moment, it means that I need to scream and shout and be really angry, that is my centering. And if in that moment, it means that I go up and kiss a stranger on the street, that is my centering, right? But it's, it's an alignment. It's not coming from the mind. It's coming from an alignment with, with my, the deepest part of my heart, which kind of goes, I, for me, it's, I say, I hear things, right? And I, I feel moved from inside. I know something and I hear something. And so as long as I'm centered in that and I am true to that, that to me is the act of centering. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for making that clear. It sounds very related to what I for myself call seeing what is, just like attending to what's true. Uh, which has become very important to me. And uh, yeah, I, th I think you're doing exactly the same thing and you're calling it centering. Do you have a specific way of getting in touch with all those parts of yourself or, you know, with that alignment? Is it, or is it something that you have achieved and that you don't fall out of anymore? No, I mean, <laughs> I don't think that's ever true. I don't know if it's, I'm trying to think again, because every time you say something, the opposite is also true sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like I call the universe like a sadomasochistic dom because it's like, <laughs> like she has a sense of humor that makes sure that you never, every time you think you know something, she's like, really? Yours the opposite. So could you rephrase that question, please? Yeah. So you described this state of being centered as being true to yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Being in touch with this deepest part of your heart. And then if it means screaming, you scream. If it means yeah. kissing someone, you kiss someone. Yeah. That's when you are centered. Right. Um, I'm curious as to, since you say like, you know, you're not always in that state. Yeah. So I'm curious as to what your practice is to get back to that state when you fall mm. out of it. So I think when I'm not in that state or when I'm not connected or hearing it, it's because I'm in my mind and my mind I, I love my mind too. It's a fascinating place. You know, it, it, uh, <laughs> it, it should not be vilified. It, it takes you incredible places. Um, and it's a different experience, but what I found is the way that I, I have the most ecstasy if I can, and I love the word ecstasy. I use it a lot now is when I remember to listen to this. So you're in your mind and when you're in your mind, you're disconnected from your body and you're disconnected from, you know, your heart a lot. And so it's like, I remember to just fall back and everyone have, might have a different way to do this. I just remember and the attention comes back. And from there I can feel into whatever it is telling me in the moment. 
And sometimes, you know, it's a nudge to go somewhere. I mean, I have so many stories of the things that this this nudge has, you know, uh, taken me to when I've listened. Um, but that's the best way that I can explain it is I just drop into my body. I remember, I pay attention and, and it's very simple. Uh, it's nothing, it's nothing special. It's like just remembering from one moment to the next, like, oh, okay, here I am now. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. But that to me points at a developed practice mm -hmm. of building awareness over a long period of time, because you, someone who hasn't done that work, mm. but just remember, yeah. they will, I think they will, you know, be stuck in their mind in the stories and whatever. And in order to remember that often, as you say you do, you need to develop some kind of a practice to get there. Mm -hmm. right? And for some people, that's meditation. For other people, yeah. it could be some other practices. Mm. And, well, I'm curious if if you could perhaps take us through how you've learned mm. to remember, how have you cultivated that awareness? I think if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have thought that the way would be meditation. <laughs> um, my grandmother was, you know, an ascetic and she was a very powerful healer and she used to do very strong meditations. And I believed so for a long time, I thought my goal in life was enlightenment. <laughs> and so I kept trying to seek it in every way possible. Um, and really, I think one of my biggest inflection points came when I hit a wall with the meditation. I was miserable. I hated my life at that point. And I thought, okay, I need help. I need a teacher. And it's the first time I needed, I asked for a teacher. And when I asked for it, so before I move ahead, I think I should probably explain a little bit of my paradigm. I believe that we're in constant um, dynamic conversation with whatever is, right? A larger consciousness, whatever you want to call it, however people want to make it. Um, and for me, this conversation has developed over time and it's very alive. I hear things, I know things, I, I feel like I'm constantly guided. Um, and so when I ask for things, I am always led to a path or an answer. And so they, they led me to this, to this teacher who was uh, so hilarious. I was, you know, expecting this proper guru kind of person. In fact, he turned out to be this shot, very um, mocking polyamorous guy, uh, gay polyamorous guy. And as soon as I entered, he said, why are you here? And I said, oh, you know, I asked for fast enlightenment. And he just looked at me and burst out laughing, which is exactly what I needed. And he said, why would you do that? And why would you take the way of Shiva when you are obviously Krishna? Now, in Indian mythology, you know, we have the Trinity of Gods, but Shiva is the destroyer and he's the one who sits in deep meditation and he's the one who kind of goes into years of deep practice and um, celibacy and all of these things. And Krishna is the hedonist. He's the player. He's the one who, you know, uh, makes war and, and um, makes love to a hundred women and all of these things. So there's all these myths about these gods. And what he was trying to tell me was there are multiple paths. And why are you picking the path that is obviously not your path? You know, when I look at you and everything about you is screaming that this is this other way is your path. And what happened from there was I realized that I was going down a prescribed route of what I thought, um, you know, connecting to my deeper self should be like, which is meditation, deprivation, and strict disciplines and practice, which is also my tradition, right? It's what I come from. But I suddenly realized, 
wait, there isn't just one path. There are so many paths. And my path is actually through pleasure, through, through the following of my heart. Once I went down that path, sure, I still meditated from some time to time, but you know, it was almost like one of the things I do once in a while. But I think what really opened up this, this ability to commune with the self and with um, the wider is um, was following the right path for me. And then I would keep following my heart no matter what it said. And sometimes it asked the most incredible things of me. No matter what it asked for, I followed it. And I've made some pretty crazy decisions. Like one of the biggest acts of self-love, if you, you know, the way you, I think you asked a question, what is the greatest act? I would say that it was when I got this nudge to let go of my really beautiful marriage. It was a, it was one of the most beautiful things ever in my life. It was actually the point where I was asked that, that came to me. We were in a really good place, really strong. We've been married 14 years. And this thing came up. It's time to let go. Because your, your next identity, your next avatar is waiting. And so is his. Like your journey together is over. Now, my mind was like, no, no. There's no way. This is perfect. Are you kidding me? Do you know how much work we put into this? And why would you let go of all this love and, and, and you know, connection and security? No. But my following that truth and doing that over and over again, I think, is what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. What comes up for me when you de describe it like this is the crazy amount of courage. Mm-hmm that well courage you know literally from from the heart yeah in french you know yeah walking away from a marriage like that seems not only foolish but also extremely difficult you know? like, <laughs> because most people are looking for that kind of marriage <laughs> most people are looking for that kind of connection where you go like yes we're at the point where after doing all the work it took 14 years we're finally like in a really good place and then you and then you go like yep time to let go and I understand. I yeah. understand. That's the thing, because I have felt similar things, you know. Yeah. Maybe I have not always been as courageous as, as you have in, in that case, but I have let go also of, of mm. other things that I thought were, were going really well. In retrospect, I have never regretted yes. moving on. Yes. And I assume that's the same with you. Oh, my God, yes. I mean, there was intense sadness and there still is sometimes i mean we're very close we're family but you know uh there are times when i, I just you miss your relationship or you miss the person like you miss an organ <laughs> but that doesn't you can hold that paradox along with this understanding that it is so right for you um and that that missing is really proof of how much you've loved And this is this comes back to this point about relating to the self or the centering, right? Because this is why I say it's not something you do to reach self-love or your love for yourself, but it's when you're coming from the self and you know you are love, even as it's scary, even as it's um, you have doubts, even as everyone around you is telling you it's the most foolish thing you will ever do in your life, because you're coming from that place, you have you just leap. You just know. 
And I can't explain how that feels. I mean, and I, I know it's courageous. I completely accept that. And I thank you for saying that. At the same time, I think it's it was easier to have that courage because you have experienced what it's like to live from there and come from there. And you know how ecstatic life is because of that. So it's like, do I choose safety because of the fear of my mind? Or do I choose ecstasy by coming from the center. Mm, yeah. But I, I feel that it, this is really next level, like in the sense that most people I feel are at the point where they're stuck in not great places. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're being held back by lots of things, but they are afraid of letting go because it means change and change mm. is dangerous somehow. And it feels that most people, once they get past that, get to the stage where they're able to create lives for themselves, where things are good for them, which is like, yes, I have risen to the occasion now my life feels nice mm. but then you're basically saying like no there's the next step where you then like let go of what's good <laughs> you follow that what is truly yours and i'm not sure i'm there yet like i'm i'm curious i'm i i feel a sense of wonder in myself now i'm like contemplating where am i and i guess the truth is that it's it's it differs depending on the yeah on the, the subject specifically, like, you know, whether it's professional or personal, or there's so many aspects to our lives. And I feel we can be in different stages in different aspects. I and, just want to quickly speak to yeah. that though, because, you Please. know, I have people saying that to me all the time, which is, wow, like, I can't believe you did that. And I wish I, what they don't realize is, yeah, I have experience maybe in one particular realm and this realm, because I've been doing, I've been on this whatever path or this sense of connection since I was 14. Um, you know, my, yeah, I went through a series of circumstances which kind of forced me into this opening. But on the other hand, I feel like I'm just starting to explore in places where other people have so much mastery. You know, when you asked me at the beginning, how do you feel? Like I had to laugh because I'm thinking, on one hand, I feel the greatest ecstasy. Like last night, I had this incredible kiss in the rain with a lover. And I was so like, it was like all my life was the meaning was in this one point. That's it. That's all that mattered. Right. I was like, I can find the meaning of life in this moment. Right. And at the same time, I have this experience of feeling really tired in moments, really like, I feel like, wow, I, from the time I made this transformation with my, with my marriage and unmarrying um, and stepping into this new kind of life it, and the trust that it required, it's also been a process that requires you to um, <laughs> constantly transform and constantly listen and constantly move. And, and a part of me just went, wow, I am tired and I don't always know what to do. And I have to figure out so many things on the earth realm. Um, how do I do this? And this is why you can be very connected and you can have all these amazing experiences and you can still be like, I don't know how to use a vacuum cleaner. Or I said, and you know, there are things you're still learning. And that's, I think I find that really exciting. And the second part to this is also when we talk, you know, when you talk of self-love or when you brought up, I love that you made that distinction because um, when you look at Instagram, you look at it and think self-love comes with a lot of, 
you know, beautiful lights and saging and, and candles. And, and I think they're important because these are rituals, right? But it also implies that self-love is this gentle, beautiful, nonviolent process of, and, and what you're doing is you're not allowing the shadow to emerge. You are not allowing the darkness it's due because we are light and dark and somehow we have not allowed the dark to be. So beautiful, Sevarchala. I love it. Yeah, I agree with you fully. I think the, the most important part of my journey when it comes to relating to myself has been to finally look at the dark, bring out the demons. And yes. Then, you know, <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. But there's another thing I'm really curious about, and I'm not sure there's a question there. I've been thinking, about, <laughs> what's the question? I'm not sure. So I'm just going to say what I, what I noticed yeah, yeah. about what you said, and then we'll see if something comes up. You've mentioned this a couple of times. And I think it's one of the most important things that I'm also learning, which is to hold space for seemingly opposite things at the same time. You mentioned feeling this sense of ecstasy, but also being really tired and not really knowing where to go. You mentioned this paradox and, and holding space for those kind of paradoxes. And mm. then a while back, you said something really beautiful as, you know, you saw the universe as some kind of like an SM dominatrix who, yes. <laughs> who always goes like, oh, you like this? Well, let's give you the opposite, you know. And I feel there's a lot of value there in learning to see things in their pluralism, mm -hmm. learning to see that, yes, the, the world contains all of the things all at the same time. Yeah. And so do we. And then the question of like shaping that path and shaping our threads is almost more like a maybe a choice like what do we feel right right now right yes so as i said i don't really know if there's a question but i guess if one question comes up that is like how did you come to see this so clearly how did you come to be able mm -hmm. to hold space for that paradox for that multitude because mm -hmm. i feel that is really first of all it's really difficult mm -hmm. and secondly it's well, at least from my perspective, completely absent from my culture. Mm. Like, you know, having grown up in Western Europe, mm. this is really a very clear, like, light against dark dialogue. There's no room for the acceptance of paradox or the balance or whatever that is. It's, it's either one or the other. So that's how I felt in my early life. And it mm. has cost me a great deal of effort to come to a place where I can hold more space. So I wonder how that has been for you. Yeah. Um... I don't think it's just Western culture anymore. I think, uh, even though I come from such an incredible country, heritage, traditions, um, this idea of we have to pursue pleasure and escape pain is so prevalent. And it's one of the worst, most destructive binaries that we have in our kind of, you know, frameworks. And I think that I would have also gone down that road, but I was very lucky that my father went bankrupt when I was 16. Um, and I can say that now, you know, looking back, but it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me, my family, because we were very wealthy growing up. And when you have that much ease and comfort and pleasure, it's beautiful. And I have to say that I loved that life. It was a beautiful life. It's a great life and I'm grateful for it. And when the opposite happened really quickly. 
like overnight. So I was still a princess in my head when I came back. Um, I was in this British boarding school and I came back and literally, you know, my mother broke the news to me very casually. Like it was like she was telling me that, you know, we were going on holiday. She was just like, yeah, so we lost all our money. We have no place to live, but we still have the car. How cool is that? <laughs> and it was just one of those things where you're like, okay. And what I saw in that moment, it was so interesting because Wealth is not just material possessions or security. It's a state of mind. It's an attitude. It's, and they can take away, like you can lose everything. You can lose your possessions. You can lose your homes. You can, but you don't lose your, your mental state about wealth, right? Uh, or what it feels like to be wealthy. And everything that you've built around it, your networks, your resources, how you think about life. This, the, one of the great blessings of wealth is the ability to see life as abundant. Hmm. And so imagine that you're holding that. And at the same time, your mother is struggling to find the money to buy food. And it's, it's happened close enough to you remembering that you have a lot of money, that it's, it's like this cognitive dissonance. And so my way of handling that and also, you know, watching my parents' marriage go through so much turmoil and being the person in the middle of it was to really go looking for answers. And one of the biggest, I think, points and what happened was when one day in the middle of a massive argument, I heard this voice, uh, which had, for many years I wouldn't understand what it was, but I heard this voice ask me to leave the house and keep walking. And I left the house and I kept walking and walking and walking. And I walked to a bookstore, which is my refuge at all times. And I walked up and I walked right to the shelf as if I knew where I was going and picked out this book. And it was Eckhart Tolle's, you know, um, Power of Now. And when I read that book, it was like something just went click. It's as if I had a contract of some sort that when I read this book, it would trigger an opening. I don't know what happened. But since then, I just kept looking and seeking and reading and, and kind of opening and opening and opening. And the path has just been, the holding of the paradox was almost natural. You couldn't do anything. And, you know, I'd become an actress by that point, like a model and an actress to earn money for my family. So there was, you know, you were in this really glitzy world, you were going to amazing parties, you, you had this persona, and then you came home to intense, um, yeah, there was pain, there was lack, there was struggle and hope as well. You know, my, my parents are amazing beings and to see them really determined and to see them try everything. Uh, and you had to hold it all together because if you insisted that you only wanted one and not the other, you would suffer. And so I learned very quickly that pain is there, but suffering is optional. And that's how, what a paradox, like the, the holding of a paradox without needing to resolve the tension is to me, one of life's most beautiful experiences. Beautiful. I love that you mentioned the word tension, because that's a mm. word I, I use a lot as well. And also for myself, I noticed that there are different ways that I use it though. So maybe I should find some other words because <laughs> <laughs> what, what you say, I yeah. agree with fully. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the tension that comes from indeed having, for example, this 
mindset of abundance and wealth, but at the same time, not having money to buy food. Yeah. That's the kind of tension that it can exist in you without needing to be resolved. But then I also use this word tension for things that I feel in my body mm. that shouldn't be there. You know, there's like a, mm. a tension and then I, that means I'm holding on to something. Mm. I'm trying to protect something or I'm not processing an emotion well or something like that. And those things obviously I think should be resolved. Those things should be mm. like released. So yeah, there's two different kinds of tension there, which brings me to my next question. I'm, I'm curious if you have a somatic practice as well, some kind of like you know, tuning into your body and then feeling if tension is present and mm -hmm. what that means for you. Mm -hmm. I find somatic, um, this whole somatic approach so interesting only because I think for the longest time I was so much in my mind and then of course in my heart uh, and intuition, but I completely ignored the body. And after a point, I got the message that Anything I want now will only come through the body. So all my wisdom, all the messages, anything I needed would only come through the body. And that I had to stop relying on my mind so much. And so, again, when we look at very formalized practices, I think they have a place in life, right? If you go to a teacher who says, let me work with your body, let me show you how to dance, let me show you how to move. It's a great starting point, but it I, I believe this is only from my experience that it should only be a starting point because everything is so unique to us. How we hold things, what meaning we make of things in our bodies, all of it is so unique to us. So part of my journey has been to, again, listen to these really strange intuitions. Like I remember once looking to learn something. I can't even remember what it was, but something said, go Google this. And I Google it and I get led to this workshop, which was Tantra. And part of that workshop had um, the Reichian um, de-armoring. I don't know if you've heard of de-armoring. And it was so amazing to do it. Can you maybe quickly, because people listening maybe don't sure, know, could sure. you say what de-armoring is about? So de-armoring is this idea, it, it was, I think, uh, formulated by William Reich, who said that we hold emotions and patterns of thought and, you know, even, I believe, ancestral lineage stuff in our bodies, you know, in our cells. And talk therapy or a lot of mind-based therapies can only go so far. And de-armoring is a process of pressing on certain points and releasing that. I think EFT does a little bit of that too. Uh, but I found de-armoring to be incredibly powerful. So yeah, uh, this workshop allowed me to access not just my own um, own things, but before going into the workshop, I remember saying, because there was a history of kind of a weird kind of anger in my mother's line. You know, my grandmother had this rage uh, and I believe it's because she didn't deal with the shadow. And then my mother had it. So every time it would pass on to the girl child and then it would leave the person before and then it came to me and I would go into this fits of rage and it was scary. But I remember saying, I will no longer pass this on. I am going to uh, transform it. And so when I went into this and I did the de-armoring, it released so much emotion. And I think it released from my entire ancestral line as well, my maternal line. And I was very different after that as well. So yeah, it, it was it was practices like this, like going to these places and going, ah, I can learn now to release this from my body. So that was one. But a second one is for me, eroticism. And a lot of people think eroticism is about sex. 
and it couldn't be further from the truth. I think sex is a part of eroticism, but eroticism doesn't necessarily have to be about sex. And for me, eroticism starts with the self. It starts with an incredible connection to all parts of yourself. Eroticism is light, dark, all shades of it. And there is nothing more embodied than erotic practices for me. So that's been another way that I've used um, somatic approaches. Beautiful. I love it. There's so much here for me to go into. I think one thing I want to highlight is something that you said that I love, which is that, you know, everything is so unique to us and formalized practices can only take us this far. This is something I have intuitively felt my whole life that there was always some part of me, like no matter what the practice was that I engaged with, I was always like a bit skeptical because, you know, this has been made up by some person in the past and then it's been carried on as like, this is the truth, this is the path. And I was like, mm, is it though? I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I very much resonate with this. Like I am a very unique being and mm. the way that I develop myself and the way that I look at myself changes through the years with all the different practices that I absorb. But there is so much more room there for, for other things. So I love that. Thank you so much for, for mentioning that. And then I think I want to speak about more, a bit more about the eroticism. That is definitely something that feels alive, that mm. in the sense that I struggle with that. You know, there's, mm. there's like, oof, I need to like figure that out somehow. And the way you say that, you know, eroticism starts with the self and there is nothing more embodied than erotic practices. What kind of erotic practices have you experienced or mm -hmm. developed that mm -hmm. brought you to this place where you feel connected mm -hmm. to yourself? First, I have to add, there's nothing more embodied than erotic practice for me. <laughs> Just for me. <laughs> Great. Great distinction. Thank yeah. you for reminding us. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting that you use the word figure out, you know, I have to figure this out. It's something I say a lot. In fact, yesterday I was telling my flatmate, I need to stop saying figuring it out because <laughs> it's such a, you know, it's such a mind-based thing that you figure out. And, and in the meanwhile, life is laughing and going, sure, you do that, you know, and I'm just happening. <laughs> So, yeah, um, I truly believe that so much of anything of living is really of just getting out of the way of, you know, taking off the resistance and everything that's meant to happen will happen to you. But erotic practice, it's I don't know how to where to start with this, because. Um, OK, let me start with this idea that why eroticism is such a, a great path and why it is connected first to the self. Um, so if someone says to me, what is eroticism? I would say, you know, there's a beautiful quote by Lawrence Ferlanghetti, the poet, who says, poetry is a naked woman, a naked man in bed together and the space in between them. And for me, eroticism is the first movement of desire and the gap to its realization. Right? That's what makes something truly erotic. But in our world today, we're so focused on realization of everything right now. So if you feel desire, I want it fulfilled right now. And because it's all available so quickly, there is no space for the, the tension, because this is also tension. Right? Even when you talked of your body, the tension in your body, I remember thinking, Hakim, that why does attention need to be resolved? And why do we think that we resolve the tension? What if that tension just wants to be in relationship with us? What if that tension is a communication 
And just by being in relationship to it, it transforms when and how it wants to, right? Because I know I have the same tensions in my body, like a lot of them. And, and I've found a different practice and we can talk about that another time. But uh, the erotic practice for me is kind of saying, I don't just feel tension with another human being. I feel this tension with all of life. So right now, for example, I'm, I'm in a state where I've, I told you I've made one of the biggest transformations of my life. I kind of destroyed <laughs> very consciously and creatively a beautiful old life. And the new is still forming. So I'm in this liminal space, the space of waiting. And, you know, the space can be very uncomfortable. And so in this space of waiting, you have this tension between the old and the new and your transformation is not yet complete. And I can either see that as, oh, this is so horrible. And I do that sometimes. <laughs> or when I change it to, this is like waiting for a lover. This is like readying myself for a night with a lover. How does that feel? Yes, you feel that anticipation. You feel the impatience. But also you feel this spaciousness of just time for yourself you're becoming ready and in that moment there's such beauty there's trepidation there's discomfort there's exhilaration all of it and anyone who tells you that you need to feel any one thing about it is is, is just not hasn't understood the point of it so yeah, sorry, I think I've gone too far off from what you were asking, but this is... No, no, not at all. I think it's beautiful. It it reminds me of like a time when, like you said, when you're waiting for a lover, you didn't necessarily know when they would arrive. Yes. Because nowadays, of course, you know to the second precisely because they're texting you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but at some point, maybe, you know, that was, that was just not the default. The default was yeah. they are coming tonight. Yes. And, and you didn't know when that was. Yes. And yeah. So I think from what you're saying, what I understand is that there's, there's this desire to cultivate the, the tension of desire before actually giving into it or, you know, um, resolving it in some way. Or wanting that uh, tension to collapse. Because yes. once whatever you want happens, the tension's collapsed. Yeah. But it's in that moment of waiting and reinterpreting that waiting. And I have a beautiful story about this. I, as soon as, you know, I decided to unmarry, I got the intuition, this, this nudge to move to Goa. Now, I would have never moved to Goa on my own because I always thought of it as very touristy. And I scoffed at the idea, but I always listened to this voice. So I said, OK, fine, I'm going to move to Goa. It was one of the best things I ever did for myself. And while I was there... I was mourning, I was grieving and letting go of an old self and my marriage and everything. And I was also, I couldn't see anything emerge. Like, you know, you've had these moments where it feels like you're going to be stuck in this space forever. <laughs> like nothing's going to ever change. <laughs> and I had a moment where I was, oh, I just looked up and I said, just give me a sign. Just show me that what I need to do, because I feel so much anxiety. And I got this nudge to open up this book, this book on Sufism that I had. And it was a random page. And there was this line and it said, Intazari faraji ibadatun. 
which translates really not well, unfortunately, because Urdu is such a poetic language. But the closest translation is to say, the act of waiting is worship. Mm. And I just went, I mean, you know, my heart, my body, everything just expanded to hold that. And I cried and I went, wow, okay, so waiting is worship. And so I'm going to wait well. So, yeah. Beautiful. I love that. That is so rich. So, virtually, wow, I'm, I'm so alive with this conversation right now. I'm <laughs> like, speaking to you always feels like catching a glimpse of a different reality. You know, it's like <laughs> there's something out there. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. But I think you inhabit that too. And, you mm. know, I think we're all starting to pull at the threads of the veil, you know. Mm. Um, but I think in order to really do that um, and to see more of this mystery, one, you have to be able to first, you know, believe in a mystery without first seeing it, right? Believe in magic before you see it. And secondly, to be able to let go of the established. So every time, my my one observation with spirituality right now, at which encompasses self-love and all of the things we've been talking about is it lives in this box in this beautiful box which is tied with ribbons and unicorns and stars and you know packaged really well and everyone kind of is reaching for that box and then they forget that it's it's just the beginning and at some point they have to open up the box and everything they want is is really inside yeah Thank you for reminding us. I think that's beautiful. I would like to add that I've definitely, let's say, reclaimed this term spirituality for myself as well. For me, everything is spirituality, right? The whole, the yes. whole path of living, the whole yes. essence of what I'm doing here on earth is in some way a spiritual journey. And there's nothing more spiritual than holding space for myself when I have a headache and I'm like puking uh, late at night and I feel terrible that's a spiritual practice yes and and to allow for things that we don't consider spiritual like um i i by the way erotic for me is also being able to expand my notion of smell so for example mm -hmm. we only think of good smells as you know beautiful and good but like when you go into rawness when you go into things that we consider yucky right um without labeling and judging if we just allow ourselves to experience it, it it transforms and i think again this notion of relating to the self comes to this idea that if you don't judge any experience first for yourself and then for others which by the way is easier said than done all the time but if you just say ah today i'm melancholic and actually you know what melancholy is so beautiful We've been told as culture, as a culture, that melancholy is a bad place to be. We need to exit us as soon as possible because we've kind of coupled it with depression. Um, and we haven't allowed the wisdom of whatever it has to teach us to emerge, right? So in a sense, I think relating to self means allowing yourself to feel everything, be everything, experience everything, and kind of also going... I'm always safe because I have this essence. But like you said in the beginning, I think that comes when you've, you've really allowed that to develop. Yes. Thank you so much. 
zu Varchala. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've loved this and thank you. I mean, I don't get spaces in which to talk about this and mm. your questions. Like I've never thought about self-love in these terms before, right? And as I started to think about it, I realized, wait, I find it very foreign. And so thank you for giving me the opportunity to think about these things. And I also want to, actually, I would love to end by, if you don't mind me, quoting Thomas More, who was one of my favorite authors. He wrote beautiful books like Dark Night of the Soul, Care of the Soul. And he says, spiritual people often speak glowingly of wholeness and pursue it as an ideal. But the soul is present in disintegration as well when we have entered life generously and have been affected, having lost our original innocence and ideals. To be spiritual is to be taken over by a mysterious divine compulsion to manifest some aspect of life's deepest force. We become most who we are when we allow the spirit to dismember us, unsettling our plans and understandings, remaking us from the very foundations of our existence. Nothing is more challenging nothing less sentimental than the invitation of the spirit to become who we are and not who we think we ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say anything like after, after such a beautiful quote, I'm just going to be like, yep. Yeah, okay. Well, Suvachala, thank you so much for being here, uh, for hanging out with me in this podcast. Uh, I think we should do this again sometime. I would love to, and we should do this face to face as well. Ooh, now there's a dream I can get behind. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love this. Enjoyed Great. it. Have a beautiful Thank day. You, and you too. Bye. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>